Our scripture for tonight is going to be James chapter 5, 7 through 8, if you want to go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn there. So I would like to thank um, Temple for having me, Dr. Reggie for inviting me back. Temple has a very special place in my heart, and just thank you all so much for having me tonight. It's a real honor for me to be here. So I've never been a, um, a patient man. Suffice it to say that that's not a spiritual gift that I have in overflowing abundance. Indeed, in that way, I think I'm kind of an embodiment of my entire generation. We are, by default, not exactly very patient people, millennials. Growing up alongside the explosion of technology, uh, the advent of the internet, the smartphone, we're used to instant gratification and figuring out what we want to know right then and there. And that um, lack of patience is kind of perfectly embodied in the story of how I tried to create this introduction. So I went to my favorite coffee shop, which is where I do my best writing under the influence of caffeine, and I decided to look up, because apparently, along with not being very patient, I'm not terribly creative either, I looked up stories of patience on the internet. So I'm going through, I click on the first link, it's some story about a cab driver in New York City. I'm like, nah, it doesn't really work. So I close out of the window, go down to the second link. It's like, ah, that doesn't really work either. And then I close out of the entire window. I just close the entire browser. And I'm sitting there, and I'm exasperated because I haven't discovered the perfect story of patience for my introduction two links in a minute into my search. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there, and I'm all huffy. And then it hits me, and I'm, this, this is the Holy Spirit, easily the Holy Spirit, and it says, wow, you need this more than anybody, buddy. <laughs> I'm preaching about patience, and I'm throwing in the towel two links down. So suffice it to say, I succumb to a pretty um, mundane trial. But the world doesn't usually throw us such meatballs. No, indeed, uh, the world has a habit of throwing some pretty hefty haymakers our way. I don't know much, I'm only 22 years old, but I know that everybody in this room has been knocked down by life at one point or another, and if I'd be willing to bet more than once. The world is unforgiving in that way, and we've got it easy relatively in the, in the U.S. of A. War, famine, epidemic, these are all phenomenons that are co-signed to the TV screen, and praise God, that's not our lived reality as it is for so many around the world. But even without these evils, chaos and sin still swirl all around us in our day-to-day -day walks, and we are only ever one phone call away from our knees. This world doesn't provide any hope, not in and of itself. The man who builds his hope in what this world provides builds it on shaky ground indeed. But the gospel shows us a hope that is not of this world. It shows us a ground to build upon that is not shaky, but is firm indeed. We have a light even in our darkest nights, and his name is Jesus. His is the glory, the splendor, and the majesty, and he has promised his return. But until he returns, he has called us to patience. But what does patience really mean? What does it mean to wait upon the God of eternity? It is these questions that I hope that we can answer by the end of tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture now. James 5, 7 through 8. 
Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So before we really dig into the theological meat of this scripture this evening, let's establish some context for which we're seeing it. The book of James is addressed to Jewish believers who are scattered throughout the Mediterranean rim. And it's designed to be a tool of encouragement and instruction on walking boldly in the faith. <clears throat> and James is very much a practical book. There's not a whole lot of esoteric theological uh, uh, musing here. It's pretty straightforward, and indeed it's so much so that it's often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Chapters 1 through 4 deal with pretty much precisely this, the practical methods of one going through their Christian walk. Chapter 1 deals with faith in the midst of trial, how we should listen to and deal um, with God's word, and then along with an encouragement in times of trial. Chapter 2 contains the famous uh, faith without works is dead verse, emphasizing the importance of living the faith while chapters three and four further flesh out that uh, walking in the faith, controlling the tongue in chapter three, wisdom of the things of God, uh, producing the humble Christian life, and then how we can deepen that humility in chapter four. <clears throat> and then a call to rely not on our own plans, not to establish our own paths, but to rely and to seek uh, God's will and then walk in accordance to that will. All that to say that this book is serving as something of an instruction manual, a framework for the Jewish believers to go about establishing their own Christian walk and organizing their spiritual disciplines. And indeed, it serves very much the same purpose for us here today, 2,000 years removed from Christ's ministry on the earth. We want to walk in a way that is pleasing to God's eye, and James intends to give us a framework that we could do that in. When we are convicted of our sin, we should not hide from God, but rather we should come before him in humble supplication, praying that God would work in a mighty way to bring about his sanctifying work, both for our good and for the glorification of his name. Again, this is a pretty simple opening four verses, nothing too complicated here. Um, approach, this is how you should approach X, this is how you should rest with Y, bring Z before God in humility, simple enough. But then we hit chapter five and we take kind of this sudden left turn. Chapter five opens with this six verse denouncement of the rich. Uh, it puts them pretty much on trial. Uh, it condemns their fancy clothes as so much death. It says their cool coats are just gonna be eaten by moths. So what's the point of them? And it's not really awesome reading for the wealthy, but we, what's really going on here? How we go from this instruction manual to suddenly, you know, coming after the rich. I think that if we launch into our a more thorough examination of the text this evening, we'll be able to answer this question. So I'm gonna read the text one more time. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So we have a lot to unpack here. There's gonna be two main points in this package. The first being the patience that we have both conceptually and practically in the midst of hardship. And the second being that the God of eternity cometh. So first, the practice of patience in the church's life and in the believer's life. 
we are compared to farmers here by James, and more specifically, we're farmers waiting upon the rain. And for us to fully be able to dig into that metaphor, we have to understand the context in which James is writing this. Uh, Israel is very much a very agricultural society, so his readers, his Jewish readers, would have immediately understood what he meant by waiting for the latter rain. The agricultural industry in Israel is based around two seasons, the rainy and the dry. The dry season lasts from about April uh, to October, so about a seven-month interval, with the rainy season then being from October to March, a five-month interval. And it would be in those seven months that the farmer would be at his most busy. Now, the first thing he would have to do is go out into the fields and reap the wheat and uh, harvest the other crops that he might grow on his fields that he planted the previous uh, dry season, and that was then ripened by the rainy season. So he would have to go out and collect all of it. And then he would uh, thresh the wheat, which would involve him laying it out upon the threshing floor and leading his livestock over it over and over and over again to smush it down. And if he didn't have enough livestock to do it efficiently, he would have to do it by hand with handheld threshing tools. He would then winnow the wheat, which would involve throwing the wheat into the air with handheld scoops to separate the head of the wheat from the chaff and the straw. And after all that, he would then take his oxen or his donkey and he would go back into the field, replow it, replant whatever he's growing, and then he got to wait upon the rain. So all the hard work, all the labor is getting really done here in this seventh month interval. Farmer is not just propping his feet up and trusting that when the rains come in the winter, They'll reap his wheat, and they'll thresh it for him, and they'll winnow it for him, and, you know, they'll replant his field after it replows, and, you know, he's not going to have to do anything because the rain's got it under control, right? No, not quite. So the farmer in the dry season, that is what James is likening our patience to. So what can we take from this? Well, several things. Firstly, our patience, our waiting upon the Lord, it's not a passive exercise, no, indeed, patience, which James is calling from us here, is not us tapping our foot impatiently and looking at the door waiting for Christ to walk through in glory. No, God has ordained us a labor, a work, and has provided within the rest of James and the rest of Scripture a framework both of what that work looks like and how our walk should look within the context of that work. We are called to ask for and live in wisdom, to practice self-control in all areas, to be humble and earnest, to endure all things, to hope all things, all the while ever looking to the horizon, anticipating Christ's ever-imminent return. And this work that we're doing, what work it is. Luke 10, 2 tells us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The Lord is allowing us to be a part of this mighty, mighty work that he is doing. The author of history is including us in the writing of it. What an opportunity we are afforded because let us not be mistaken. Our God will have his harvest. He's not reliant upon us in order to bring anyone to salvation, but rather he is affording us the opportunity to be a part of it. Our patience is not inactive. It's not us sitting around, but rather it is the opposite. It is the rolling up of the sleeves and striding into the field for the good work of the Lord, ever waiting for his return. But the, thorn, the field is not without thorns and rocks. 
know anybody who's been alive for any amount of time know that there's no small toil in the pursuit of the Lord's work. Indeed, I don't think that there's a coincidence going on here that James juxtaposes this um, passage on labor and us being small landowning farmers with the condemnation of the immoral wealthy, just the verses before. Oftentimes our worst moments, our most terrible memories, they come at the hands of others. We can expect resistance, we can expect ridicule, we can expect scorn in the pursuit of the Lord's work, but we can also expect that the Lord will be well pleased in us. Blessed are we when we are ridiculed and mocked for the sake of Christ. But even irrespective of direct persecution, be that from the state or employers or even our neighbors, the world has its own share of trouble for the believer. Much as the sun beats down on the head of the farmer, so too do the troubles of the world furrow our brow and scorch our skin. The call for patience is a call to action, make no mistake. It is a call to good works and kingdom business as we look ever to the return of Christ, but it is also a call to endurance. To follow Christ is not to stroll along in a rose garden, and Christ certainly did not attempt us to deceive us to believe that it was. No, indeed, he says to those that believe, take up your cross and follow me, denying the self that God might be glorified. The patience we are called to is above all else necessary. And the hope of Christ, God be praised, rests ever in the spirit of those who believe and what joy and peace it is for us believers to gaze upon the cross and be reminded of the glorious gospel. But the agony of the world can draw our eyes away from Calvary and all too often they do, be it death, financial troubles, sickness, alienation from our fellow man, temptation, sin, any number of things sicken the soul and clamor at our mind for our attention. Patience in the coming of the Lord is at its, its, its most difficult to have in these seasons of trial, as in these seasons of trial that it is also most necessary and indeed most life-giving both to ourselves and to others. We should not approach these trials as a punishment or judgment as Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed unto us even now. And God cannot tempt any into sin, so let us afford no temptation unto him, as we saw in James 1, 13 and 14. Rather, let us approach these trials as the mechanism by which our faith is deepened and strengthened, that we might better serve God in the world. Unless we think our suffering too great, too terrible to bear with endurance, we might look at James, uh, verse 11 of this very same chapter, chapter 5 where the long-suffering Job is praised for his endurance. Now make no mistake, we have all faced our share of agony, our share of hardship, our share of pain in this room. But for myself, I know I would be hesitant to put all that I, which I have experienced alongside Job. And he endured for his own good, materially, yes, but more importantly, spiritually, and most importantly of all, for God's glory and what good it was and what good it is and what good it shall be. 
was on a cruise uh, about two weeks ago, my lovely family. Uh, it was a seven-day cruise out of New Orleans. Uh, we hit Cozumel, Belize, and Honduras, and it was, it was this beautiful and much-needed break from the chaos of the day-to-day in the world, right? You're out there, just you, the ship, 5,000 of your closest friends. <laughs> but it really, it really was lovely, and one of the reasons, one of the big reasons that it was lovely is that my phone, it like, didn't work. For whatever reason, uh, they haven't installed cell towers in international waters. I'm sure it's some kind of international law issue. There has to be the technology to do that, you would think, right? Uh, for whatever the case, uh, we didn't have service, obviously, out there. We didn't buy the Wi-Fi because that's a racket. And so basically, my phone is this high-tech brick, right? It, it, there's nothing coming in on it. But that didn't stop me. Oh, no, ma'am, it did not. It was the strangest thing. I've always been kind of aware of how much I'm on my phone, even growing up in the generation that I, that I, uh, that I have. And in the last few months especially, I've been kind of confronted with it more and more, right? It's like, oh, I really am on my phone a lot. And then God took that. It's like, oh, let's rat that it up to 19, you know, on this trip. So for, first of all, I took the phone with me places, which again, it's just a weight on my hip. Like, that's all it is at this point. But not only that, if I took it with me somewhere, every five minutes, I went through this strange little ritual. Take the phone out of pocket, turn it on, no service. Turn it off, back in my pocket. <laughs> five minutes later, same deal. And there's nothing going on here, right? There's no information, there's no downloads. I'm not getting any messages, not that I would anyway if I had service, but there's nothing going on here. And I can't stop looking at the thing. So besides highlighting the fact that I, like, need professional help, (laughs) why am I telling you this? Well, that kind of encapsulates us today, doesn't it? The beauty of the gospel is always available for us. It's it's just right there. It's the beauty of being post-scripture Christians is that the promises of God and the glory of God is ever available for us. Just right there in the scripture. But the world's chatter draws our attention instead. And just like that dead phone, it holds nothing for us. We profit nothing in this world, but we cannot stop looking to it. We cannot stop uh, obsessing over what it might hold for us. We allow it to occupy our minds and dominate our thoughts. And beautiful, though the ocean was, and it was pretty beautiful, it can't hold a candle to the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God, which is infinitely more pleasing to gaze upon and infinitely more costly to miss on. We don't really live in the uh, reality of Christ's promise fully, and that's really a darn shame because the peace we're missing, the joy we're lacking, that passion, that purpose that we're looking for, it's in that promise that we would find it. The mind-bending goodness of Calvary's cross has secured our future, not our own works, not our own righteousness, such rags as they are, but rather the perfect work and righteousness of Christ bought an impossibly high price and offered freely to all who would confess Christ as Lord. 
What assurance that we have that we miss out on when we look at the world and not at Christ. And what patience we might possess if we would just recall all he has done, the promises that he has kept and the works that he has done for the good of man and the glorification of his own name. For that is what the passage is also pointing us towards, beckoning us to gaze upon, that day when sin and temptation is penultimately overthrown. We are called to endure, for the glory of the Lord is at hand. And we begun to dwell in that space that the return of the Lord is nigh, all else fades away. We mentioned Job earlier, but he endured unthinkable tragedy. And that was because he had seen God for what he was. He knew God. He knew him to be full of tenderness and mercy. Job died well before it was written, but I believe that he would have understood better than most those poignant words of Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. Whether or not we are alive when Christ returns in glory, this much is true. We will in time see all things set right. We will experience the full presence of the triune God for all eternity, glory indescribable by anything as paltry as any words that I could come up with. So let us just say this, if we are in Christ and Christ lives in us, we need not look in fear to our future. For our future is secure in his perfect work upon Calvary's cross, his triumphant conquering of the grave, and his imminent return in full majesty and full glory. What ecstasy that our future is not anchored in ourselves, but in this Savior who clings to those he calls and does not let one sheep stray from the flock he has elected. Do not be afraid, brothers and sisters. The return of the Lord is near. And what joy, what unspeakable joy it is to have a friend in him. To be a son or a daughter of God. Take heart. The return of the Lord is near. This hope we have is based solely on the free gift of mercy offered to us, repentant sinners, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our works are good, yes. They are important, yes. But if we are to rely upon them to reach heaven's gates and prove ourselves worthy in the eyes of a fully righteous and a fully holy God, we are as children trying to reach the moon by climbing a tree. Our God has bridged the gap. Praise, glory, and honor be unto his name, and his mercy knows no ends. If you are not yet a believer in this place, but you would want to know more, I beg that you would not leave here tonight without talking to somebody about this. There is no magic prayer. There is no repeat after me. There is the heart of a sinner who realizes its sin and bows humbly before the Lord of the universe, declaring Christ to be Lord. That is the gospel, that is the truth, and that truth will set you free. And for my fellow believers, my brothers and sisters in Christ, our hope is alive, irrespective of if we live to see his most glorious return or if we leave for home before that beautiful day. We know that, is, that when we wait upon the God of eternity, we do not wait in vain. Our God is who he says he is. He keeps his words 
across all generations, and he has not forgotten his promises. Take heart, beloved, tire not of good works, and of faithful servitude to our fellow man. We work not in vain, but in proclaiming the glory and the splendor and the majesty of him who loved us and saved us when we were yet sinners. What a salvation, what a savior. May our patience be vast. May our patience be active. May our patience show the world the hope of Christ by which they might know him. Praise be to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ forever. And let us look ever to his return. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your mercy and for your love with which you loved us. That even while we were yet sinners, you died to save us from our sin. May our patience be active. May we not tire of good works. May we ever go out into the fields knowing that we work not for ourselves or for our own glorification, but for your name, that most precious of names, the name above all names. May we ever seek your face. And may we ever look for the return of Christ. Lord Jesus, come soon. It is in that name that I pray. Amen.